as you can see, we continue on with Ellie Hugh. I just labeled it Worked Up Part 2. Uh, we were at camp, as I mentioned earlier, and, and we had our two younger kids with us, Clay and Avery. And Heather and I were chatting uh, in the room, and we were trying to remember our uh, team names from Vacation Bible School. Uh, Abby and Newman, they're running the same program up in I forget what say, Rhode Island, there we go. It's up in New England, up north. Um, and so they were asking some questions, trying to help out. They were able to use some of the materials we had. And so we were chatting and, and Clay kept on interjecting into our conversation. And since he didn't listen to us about being quiet, we said, hey, why don't you just be quiet for a while? Just stop talking and we'll let you know when you can talk again, which he then uh, obeyed us. And then when I gave him the green light to talk, uh, every word he'd held in, came out in abundant detail. Sometimes I don't think that helps me. Like after I, they have more time to process. And what's funny is the first thing he said was, by the way, uh, the name of the team you were trying to remember was Crazy Coconuts, I think it was. And so he was going to spit out there. But all of that to say, he'd been bottled up for a while. And the second he could talk, he shared everything uh, that was on his mind. He couldn't wait to impart uh, his wisdom. And if you ever met Clay, he's always interested in parting his wisdom. So uh, I say it's a family trade. I try to blame Heather for that, but I guess I have to take credit there where it's due. Uh, Ellie Hugh is this character. We talked about it uh, last week a little bit. He's waited quite some time to speak. And when he does, he has a lot to say, and he does so in a very detailed way. Uh, we're so used to things being shortened uh, to be quick, to be in a summary, uh, to be bullet pointed. And as you read through Job and you read through the discourse that's here, uh, much of what's said is poetry. And so they say it in the long way. And, and Eliu has a lot to share. But as we mentioned last week, though it's easy to see Elihu as just a fourth friend that's missed the point, one with a big self-esteem, highly emotional, opinionated. But, but as we learned if we remove our culture and our context, if, if we actually look at him and don't put our norms on there, because we're used to seeing what he's saying and it seems arrogant, it seems self-promoting, and it seems all these things, when we take that away, which as we mentioned, putting our societal norms onto Elihu is as pretentious as he seems to sound to us. And as you investigate what he's saying, you realize that he is singularly passionate for God's glory and God's character. And he's bothered by what Job has said in his suffering. He is not accusing Job of being this wicked, hidden sinner, but instead has narrowed in on the times in Job's conversation where he has cast an accusation or accusation against God and has undermined God's glory, God's name, God's character. And he feels correctly that they need to be addressed. By the way, when God comes on the scene in 38, Elihu's speech in 37 sets up that perfectly and it moves. And God does address Job's speech. He never answers him about his suffering, but he does address him about what he said about God. Now, this is not to discount all the good that Job has said. Remember, Job has been seeking a redeemer and he's seeking a mediator. And we saw last week that Elihu references that redeemer and that mediator unique from the friends. The friends want to strip the mediator away and make him non-existent. And Elihu is pointing to him. So as we walk in, recognize that Elihu has a lot to say. He's now on speech two. We're going to go do speech two and three this morning. And we're going to see that he's not like the friends. He has confronted the friends, and he's basically told them they lack wisdom. 
which is a bold statement. He's confronted Job, and mainly his first speech dealt with Job's accusation that God is silent. And Elihu has shown to all gathered, and I want us to recognize this. We see Job and three friends, and now Elihu, and he's a character that just kind of pops on the scene after weeks or possibly months. And I want us to recognize that the likelihood of there being other town elders, other people in audience is high. We're going to see that when he references wise men later on. Well, he wasn't referring to the friends because he's already told them they're unwise. And so there's other people possibly there. And he's spoken to Job. And last week, he really wanted to make one point clear that God speaks and that he does so clearly. That within Job's suffering, God was speaking, that he spoke through conviction, uh, that he spoke through even the suffering that Job was going through. Now, throughout Elihu's conversation, he always leaves room for Job to talk. Job does not choose to speak. And one person wrote this, and I think it's a, it's a worthy thought. He says, likely that Job was processing what Elihu had to say. He was confronting him on what he had done wrong. Remember, Job is still the guy that God described as blameless. In other words, a man of integrity who was the same on the inside as well as the outside, not a hypocrite. He is extolled as one of the more righteous people in the Old Testament, a type of Christ even. And so you see that we can't strip away who he is. And so take that character and you can imagine as, as Elihu is teaching truth, There's a reason why Job is silent. He's possibly processing it. And so since Job doesn't respond, Elihu continues now with his second speech, letting Job and let's say everyone know this, that God is fair. God speaks, he says, and now he says God is fair. And what I mean by that is he is just and he is good. That's chapter 34. Now, Elihu being human if you're reading this, you do, he does seem to lose sight of the person of Job. His tone sharpens. It's like he's neglecting the individual circumstances that Job is walking through, which uniquely when you hear God speak, you don't see him miss that. But we want to keep in mind Elihu's passion, and his passion is for God's glory, and it has not wavered. He cares about God's name and God's honor. And so 34 starts off, Furthermore, Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, O ye wise men, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. For the ear trieth words as the mouth tasteth meat. Let us choose to use judgment. In other words, be discerning. Let's think. Let us know among ourselves what is good, or let's choose what is right. And he launches his second speech with that call to think to be discerning. By the way, that's the same call that every believer has. We're called to be thinkers. We're called to be discerning. He references those wise men, which again kind of points to more than the three friends and Job sitting there. And what he's saying is, is I want you to weigh what is being said. I want you to digest it and take the time to come to a biblical conclusion. And I put here, and I always label these in uh, like a thought question as I'm looking at this. Have we, as a church and as believers in our era, have we given the right weight and time to arrive at a biblical conclusion in our lives? 
See, that's what Elihu is starting off. He's saying, look, he's going to talk about God being fair, but to list God being fair, he's saying you're going to have to draw the right conclusion. To draw the right conclusion, you're going to have to think biblically. And what he's saying to Job and the friends and possibly the gathered group that's there of leaders from that town or beyond is that we need to be thinking biblically. And do we allow the weight of God's word and truth and the time to arrive at a biblical conclusion, I put an alternative, or has our thinking followed our emotions? And instead of being biblical, we just use the Bible to prove our own personal point. It is very easy to prove whatever point you want from some portion of scripture. I think anyone here, given time, can find a verse that will prove their point, taken out of context, twisted and turned, quick off the fly from my emotions. I feel angry, I find a justification for that anger. If I feel this, then I can justify it with this verse. And what Elihu is calling us to, and it's kind of a a side note to start out, is take a minute to think biblically, to remove, because that's what he's telling Job. When Job speaks out against God, it is emotions that are crying out. It is the pain of the moment, it's the suffering, and it's just crying. And, and, and Elihu is not negating the pain or trying to blame him for it, but instead saying, take the time to think biblically. Come to biblical conclusions. He continues, for Job has said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Should I lie against my right? My wound is incurable without transgression. And Elihu again summarizes what Job has said. Job has remarked that he is right that God has denied him justice, that God has made him appear in the wrong, and that his situation is hopeless. Sadly, these statements show something that Job has believed. And I use the word somewhat. Job, I don't want to suddenly switch and say, well, Job is completely in the dark now. Job, in, in portions of his suffering, has bought into the deception of Satan. What is Satan trying to say to Job? God is cruel and not loving. As Ash notes, the Satan has masqueraded as God and has persuaded Job of this. He's pretended to be the hand of God, and Job has seen that, and he sees God as the enemy. And what's happened is in, in time of his suffering, portions of his suffering, Job has bought into Satan's lie that God is cruel. I think if we look at our life, there's times when we look to God and we see cruelty. And we think that God is cruel. And what we're missing is we're missing the truth. We're being deceived by Satan. And we're in a certain situation and we're in a certain circumstance and a certain amount of pain. And we're crying out and we feel that God is silent. And then we feel that God is cruel. And and that's a little bit what Job has bought into. That's Satan's lie. He goes on, what man is like Job who drinketh up scorning like water? which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity and walketh with wicked men. For he has said it profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. And so now he goes on and shares more of Job's error. And again, we're, we're kind of fixating what Job, how Job responded at times in his suffering. Job has again somewhat bought into the world's thinking. He's bought in somewhat to the false thinking of the friends, buying into the lie that we serve God to get blessing. Otherwise, there's no point to serve God. Now, I want you to notice what Elihu is doing, and and these words are critical as you look at it. Job has become one like the wicked, who is now with his words and accusations 
talking like them or walking with them. He's not saying he is the wicked. He's saying you're in now the company of the wicked. In essence, he's telling Job, with some of the things you've said, you're agreeing with your friends who are unwise, who have walked the wrong way. The basis of this thinking is there's no point in doing right. This won't be a thought that ends with Job, though. We preached through Malachi, I don't know, maybe been a year ago, and it ends, and part of Malachi's issue is he's dealing with Israel who has this kind of idea that it's pointless to serve God. If you look at Malachi 2.17, you've wearied the Lord with your words, he says, yet ye say, wherein have we wearied him? And Malachi says, when ye say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delighteth in them, or where is the God of judgment? This is something that permeates. I think that we can see ourselves saying the same things at times. Why do the wicked prosper, God? What's going on? Where are you? Why aren't you working? And I want us to see something. We keep telling God to work by our system, that he has to work on our timetable and our mentality. And that's what Elihu is confronting because the takeaway from this that Job has is that God is not fair. Elihu is instead defending the integrity and justice of God because he says this, God is fair in his sovereignty, in his government of this world. God rules. No one else is above God. Satan has influence here. He's among the world. He's not God, though. Notice that he had to get permission from God to do anything that he's doing. He doesn't rule. He doesn't tell God what to do. When God and Satan conflict, it is not a battle of equals. It's never been a battle of equals. God is far above him. So he goes on, Therefore hearken unto me, ye ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness. In other words, it is impossible that God would do wrong. It's crazy to even accuse him of it. And from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him and cause every man to find according to his ways. What he's saying is this, God will ultimately judge fairly in light of who we are, in light of who we personally know. In other words, God is fair. He may not be on your timetable, but everything will come about as it should. And if you think about it, as you read in Revelation, you read and throughout the New Testament, we talk about the judgment and our works are put before us. We see it and we are judged by the most critical judgment. Do we know Christ as our Savior or not? And so it's all going to unfold as he says, he goes, yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. And then 13 and 15 are questions, and you need to read them that way. He says, who hath given him a charge over the earth? Who's given God charge of the earth? And the rhetorical answer is no one. Or who hath disposed the whole world? If he set his heart upon a man, if he gather unto himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh shall perish together, and man shall turn again unto dust. What he's saying is God will not do wrong, commit error, or elevate evil. It's unthinkable. Beyond that, God does not do wrong for one really main reason, because God is God. He rules and he reigns. He says, who gives him charge of the earth? No one does, because the charge of the earth is God's innate right. No one gave him the authority. No one said to God, you're now in charge. God is in charge. 
He goes on looking at him being the supreme warrant. No one delegated charge of this world to God. There is no higher authority. Now, you, you play into the religion of that day as well because they worship Baal or Baal, depending how you want to pronounce it. I stick with Baal because it makes sense. And he is given charge of the world by the head god El. And so their whole religion had different gods being given delegated authority. So as Elihu is speaking, and he's speaking into a community uh, of people, he's also confronting their false religion. He's saying God is in charge and no one gives God authority because authority is vested in who God is. With that fact established, if God was unjust, then there would be no such thing as justice in the world. If the supreme authority is corrupt, then there's only corruption possible. And since God innately has the right to rule, if we accuse him of injustice, then there's no such thing as justice. The reality, though, that we even think of justice and have a concept of it points to the truth that it exists and must be a part of the supreme ruler, our Lord and Savior. To accuse God of injustice is to deny who God is. Eliu even emphasizes that without God, we cannot exist. Whatever God decides will come to pass. It's a helpful reminder, right? In this world that's seeking control, people that speak out against God, say there's no God, there's no concept of God, he doesn't exist. I want you to realize something as you listen to the most vile person speak out against the ruler of this world. Know this, that if God wants to, they don't breathe unless he gives them permission. And we as believers sometimes lose sight of the fact that they can't even stand up to speak. You read, of, uh, it's King Herod, right? He, get, he comes up to speak and apparently it's, it's an ax and he's wearing something that glimmered and these people that are trying to get him to give him food say he's a God and he doesn't deny it and God takes his life. He dies a horribly painful death. Those are little reminders to us that none of us are breathing right now without God's permission or actually his gift of breath for every breath that we take. We don't thwart God's purpose. The world cannot. And Job has chosen to accuse the God, the ruler, the king. If now thou hast understanding, hear this, Elihu says, hearken to the voice of my words. Shall even he that hateth right govern? And wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Think on this, Elihu says, be wise, listen up. Is it right for Job? For us to condemn the Almighty, the one most just in all the universe, kind of putting in a comparison? Well, no, and here's why. And there's reasons he's going to give to prove God's justice now. He says, Is it fit to say to a king, Thou art wicked, and to princes, you are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the person of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands? How is God just, Elihu says? Let me show you how he's just. You don't even dare to speak against a king or a prince, and you speak against the one who doesn't regard princes above the pauper, that cares less about your wealth. In other words, Elihu says God doesn't show partiality. How is he just? There are no favorites. God is not looking down and picking the people he likes the most and blessing them while taking a sucker punch at the ones who irritate him. God is not picking and choosing. He's not playing a manipulative game. 
is what he's saying. He's not picking his favorites. Beyond that, it says this, In a moment shall they die, and the people shall be troubled at midnight and pass away, and the mighty shall be taken away, and that's really critical, without hand. And what he's saying is God does judge, and it will not be with uncertainty. He's not saying that the judgment happens immediately. He's saying this, that when it does happen, there'll be no doubt who does it, and there's not going to be a human hand visible When we stand before God, when we face judgment, when the world is judged, there's going to be no doubt about what is ruled. There will be no hemming and hawing on God's part. He doesn't have to go into the jury room and spend hours deliberating. He has no uncertainty at all. But beyond that, it's obvious that it is God working. And Elihu is pointing back and saying, look, God doesn't pick favorites, and God doesn't decide with uncertainty. He's not wavering. He's not unsure, which kind of builds to this. It ties to God knowing, for his eyes are upon the ways of man, and he seeth all his goings. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves. For he will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. He shall break in pieces mighty men without number and set others in their stead. Therefore, he knoweth their works and he overturneth them in the night so that they are destroyed. And what Elihu is saying to Job is this. He's in a judge with no uncertainty. And by the way, God does know everything. God doesn't miss anything that happens. There is no place one could hide and not be visible to him. There is no corner of this world so obscure that God overlooks it. You think, wow, no one knows about the injustice that happens in such and such country in the farthest reaches, and that's a lie. Someone does know, and it's God. Instead, he knows all, and we don't have to wonder if he sees the situation or that he sees them correctly. Let's be honest, we don't oftentimes trust God to see things our way. And I'm going to come back to this idea that we want God to function in our way and about our standards and in our timetable. And Elihu is saying this, remove your timetable, but recognize that God is fair, that God sees the situation perfectly and then can judge perfectly about it. There is, and this is the point, no ignorance in the almighty, all-knowing one. He doesn't pick favorites when he decides there's no uncertainty. There's not a hemming and hawing. And then you don't have to worry that he has all the facts and comes to the right conclusions. There is no ignorance with God. He striketh them as wicked men in the open sight of others because they turn back from him and would not consider any of his ways so that they cause the cry of the poor to come unto him. And he heareth the cry of the afflicted. God sees all and he is not secretive about his judgments. There's no underground undertaking. When God judges, it will be open for the whole universe to see his judgment and justice. And I put here, when God is fair, there is no secret. God's not tricky. He's not like Satan at all. Satan is the opposite of him. Satan works in deceitful ways in the undercurrent. God doesn't work that way. God is not a secretive God, that manipulative trickster that we see. And even though God may delay his judgment, and this is critical for Job, he remains just. When he giveth quietness, and that means when he doesn't give a response that we see, 
who then can make trouble? And when he hideth his face, who then can behold him, whether it be done against the nation or against the man only, that the hypocrite reign not, lest the people be ensnared? And what he's stating emphatically here is that even though God may seem inactive, even though it seems that he's quiet, he remains ever just. Job has wrestled with this more than anything else. He wants the answer. And this is the critical thing. He wants the vindication now. And process that a little bit in your own heart and life. When do we want vindication? When do we want it resolved? When do we want suffering to end? When do we want the struggle to be over? And I guarantee you that every one of us say, right now. It has to be over now, God. If you're working, it's over now. Otherwise, you're not working. And Elihu is reminding Job that just because it's not now doesn't mean that God is not just. And because things are not on his timetable for Job this earth, he begins questioning God and his fairness. And Elihu confronts Job and he confronts us with a call to be patient. Our God is ever just, even when we feel the delay is too much. And I want you to think a second in your own life and through your own circumstances and through your own struggles and through your own battles. Have you ever thought that God has waited too long? Then what happens is this thought comes in that if God is waiting too long, that he must not be just. And Elihu actually hits on a hard faith topic that we trust God's fairness, that he is just even when it feels too long. And we learn something from this. Patience is a must for us. Patience is an act of faith, even more so than just endurance. Because I view patience as holding my breath while someone punches me so that I can move past it instead of walking the journey of faith that patience involves. Because it means I'm not just grinning and bearing it, but instead trusting in God's perfect timing. It's about resting in him. And that ultimately, if you ever wonder how someone can be so patient, if you look at Paul's life, and and actually one of the things that blows my mind about Paul is how many years he spends in prison, which is a lot of patience. How is he doing that? And like, where's the breaking point? There is no breaking point because patience is resting in God and in his control and in his timing. And so there is no breaking point for Paul because his patience was not toughening it out but instead resting or trusting in God. And so his patience can last for as long as God needs it to. Patience is a must. And that's what Elihu is saying. And so he says to Job, surely it is meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, I will not offend anymore. In other words, it'd be a good idea to tell God I've been wrong. And he says, that which I see not, teach thou me. And and Elihu is telling Job, why don't you just ask God to teach you. Instead of accusing God, why don't you ask God to show you, to help you walk through this? If I have done iniquity, I will do no more. Commit to stopping your accusations. Should it be according to thy mind, he will recompense it, whether thou refuse or whether thou choose, and not I, therefore speak what thou knowest. He calls on him to stop talking against God, admit that he's been disrespectful, sin and speaking, which he's done, and call on God to teach him. Job should not be demanding his way and expect God to bend to him. Instead, do what is right and address your wrong attitude. 
Let men of understanding tell me, and let a wise man hearken unto me. Job hath spoken without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end. And that sounds like he's being mean. We'll explain that he's not. He's actually saying, I want Job to actually get an answer. I hope that God speaks to Job. He goes on, because of his answers for wicked men, for he addeth rebellion unto his sin, he clappeth his hands among us and multiplieth his words against God. And I want you to realize something, and we'll touch on a verse uh, later on that, that God says, ultimately, Job does exactly this. He puts his hand over his mouth and says, I'm going to stop talking against God. Elihu wraps up speech two, saying this to Job, you've spoken unwisely about God. He wants him to hear the closing arguments from God. He says, I want God to speak to you. I want what you've asked for. I want God to interject in this. And God actually does. Chapter 38. It's not a cry for more suffering for Job, but he wants his arrogant words against God to be answered. Again, which God does in chapter 38. Because the reality is Job with his words has shown impatience with God's purpose. He's pushed back against God and that is wrong. When we push against God, it is rebellion. And I, I did this in our adult Bible fellowship. If rebellion is wrong, then it's sin. So in other words, when we push back against God, we are sinning. And we're supposed to confess our sins and repent of them. We're supposed to stop doing those. And that's what Elihu is driving Job to. He's not saying you're a horrible person, because that would be wrong, because God has said he's blameless. But it is you have sinned, you've rebelled with your words, and you need to stop. You need to change that. Though God has remained patient with Job, it does not negate the seriousness of belittling and attacking God's character continually. Job is put up as, as an Old Testament saint who walked through, the only person who walked through worse than Job was Jesus Christ. He suffered the most. He is not just a story. It's a reality that his suffering is hard to match anywhere else. But that doesn't excuse belittling God. And, and it's, it's helpful for us as a church to realize that, how serious God's name is and his glory. This is not something that God is casual about. I do want you to see how patient God is. But it's not because it's not important. It's because he's loving and he's merciful. Elihu is stating emphatically that God is fair. There is no inconsistencies in him or his rule, and it's a dangerous sin to excuse or accuse him otherwise. Job has allowed suffering to push his timetable to buy into the world's logic of worship and serving God. He has allowed suffering to express impatience with God. And I put a couple questions for us. Have we possibly lost sight of God's rightness, of his justice on his timetable? I know it's very easy for me. I want the wicked people in the world to be punished now. I want God to confront them now. I want him to, to strike them down with lightning, whatever it is. But you realize if I put everything on my timetable, then I have to be struck with lightning, that I have to be taken out. Have we lost sight of God's rightness, of his justice, of his righteousness, that he is correct? When we find our emotions in conflict with his will, then we have to draw the conclusion that we must submit to his will. Have we, like Job, bought into the world's thinking, into the philosophy that serving God is worthwhile only when it is worthwhile to me and not because he is worthy? We worship God because he's worthy. 
We don't worship God for the starburst candies that he throws out to us. But sadly, we seem to worship God for the candy he throws out instead of because he's worthy. And then I put as a third question, have we become impatient with God and in so doing attacked the just character of God? God is supremely just and we need never wonder if he knows or that he acts correctly. Now, Elihu shifts to his third speech saying God is not only fair, but God is faithful, meaning he's trustworthy and he's worthy. And this is a bit of a shorter chapter that we'll walk through. Elihu spoke or spake moreover, which means another speech, and said, Thinkest thou this to be right, that thou saidest my righteousness is more than God's? For thou saidest, What advantage will it be unto me? And what profit shall I have if I be cleansed from my sin? I will answer thee and thy companions with thee. In other words, we're coming back to this idea of worth. This idea, is God worthy? Is God trustworthy? Is he worthy? Is God faithful? And he begins this exposing something in Job that Job is battled against, but he's caved to as well. And that's that prosperity gospel that's been pushed on Job by the friends. And Job has expressed some things that shows that he struggled with it. He says, you've asked what point there is in serving God if it does not equal some temporal blessing. We talked about this already in the last speech. What is the point of being good or godly? Well, he says, look unto heavens and see and behold the clouds which are higher than thou. If thou sinnest, what dost thou against him? Or if thy transgressions be multiplied, what doest thou unto him? If thou be righteous, what givest thou him? Or what receiveth he of thine hand? The wickedness may hurt a man as thou art, and the righteousness may profit the son of man. Which sounds a lot like Eliphaz and saying that it doesn't matter what you do on earth, it doesn't affect God. And that's not what Elihu is saying. He's trying to show Job that you don't manipulate God. That you're not going to come to God and leverage God or that you're not going to damage God's rule by what you do. He says, look up first. Your actions aren't going to change the weather. Your wrong actions cannot damage God and your good actions do not put God in your debt. How many people think, well, I've served God. What's God done for me? I've served God all my life. Why am I facing this struggle? I've done this. Why don't I have that? And what Elihu is trying to turn is saying, you don't get to leverage God. Now, he's not telling Job it doesn't matter what you do to God. That makes his whole speech pointless. Because he's telling Job it matters that you submit to God, that you stop running your mouth against God. If it didn't matter at all, then he would say, just talk, say whatever you want. It doesn't make a difference. It matters to God. But he says, I want you to understand, you go accuse God, you sin in this, you're not going to damage God. You're not going to bring God lower. You're not going to wound him. And again, he's, he's almost, uh, in a way, attacking the false religion that surrounded them because they had these gods as kind of human in the sense that they could face an injury and be brought down. And he says, you can't bring God down. And your good doesn't give you leverage with God. And I put this, we do not leverage God. I don't go to God and say, hey, I've done this. And so you should give me this. If you see that in yourself, even a hint of it, recognize what you're doing. You're going to the God of the universe who died on the cross for your sins to save you for no good that you've done. It's his love. It's his grace. It's his mercy. And we're going to say to him, hey, by the way, I sacrificed a little bit. I gave up some money. I gave up a career. I dedicated my life to you. And what have you done for me? You see how quickly we want to leverage God? 
God doesn't owe us. And I think, sadly, we too often fall in the trap of thinking that he does. If I live for him, he better take care of my problems. If I repent of my sin, then he had better remove the consequences. God has to respond the way I want. Otherwise, I'm angry. But we need to realize something. We do not leverage God. Eliu continues, and he deepens his rebuke a little bit. He says, by reason of the multitude of oppression, they make the oppressed to cry. They cry out by reason of the arm of the mighty. In other words, oppressed people are crying out. But he says this, but none saith, where is God my maker? And I'm going to repeat this. Nobody seeks God. They just cry out in their oppression. They cry from their circumstance. They don't cry for God. He goes on, who giveth, and he's just describing what God does, who giveth songs in the night, who teacheth us more than the beasts of the earth and make us wiser than the fowls of the heaven. There they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God will not hear vanity, neither will the Almighty regard it. See, there's oppression worldwide, Elihu says. Nothing's changed. We see that in our world. And people cry out, but they do not cry for God. They might cry out and, and blasted out there. I'm oppressed. I'm being oppressed. It's terrible. But he's saying they're not crying for God. Where is God my maker is not something they're saying. And that speaks of a heart that seeks God, that longs for God. The oppressed cry, but as Ash states, they do not pray. They do not truly seek the Lord, the one who gives songs in the night, whose wisdom and help far exceeds what this world provides. That's why he's saying you can learn a lot from the world, from the beasts and the fowls. And, the, and we've seen that, right? We're, we're more advanced than any other society. We haven't regressed at all. Look at what we can do as humans. What we're capable of. If you, if you study philosophy at all, and, and somewhat a waste of time unless you like the history of philosophy, because it's all a bunch of smart people with bad ideas that repeat themselves over and over again. But you, you, you can track through this if you like that, and you can see how all these really smart people <coughs> came up with these really neat situations and circumstances and way to deal with the world, and, and it's moved through time. All of them end crying out for God, or at least most of them do, um, knowing that they have nothing and their, their whole philosophy is empty. But we can see how smart we've gotten. We see the technology. But he's saying, uh, you're crying to the wrong people. You're not crying for God. You're just saying, huh. And someone better than anything we can see is there. But there's no answer because the cry comes from vanity. And that word vanity means empty. It's worthless and deceitful. And what it's saying is it's a cry from an unbelieving heart. And Elihu is setting something up. And he's not trying to tell Job he's an unbeliever. He's trying to tell Job all the oppressed people cry out, but it's just lie that they're crying out. Because they're not crying to God. They're crying to the world or somebody else to help them. It's a, it's a lie. It's a deceitful cry because they don't believe in God. Elihu then continues and he takes the general teaching to the specifics of Job's situation. Job said God doesn't answer, that he's waiting. And, and Elihu compares his cry now to the emptiness of the faithless. He's saying, you're crying out now like an unbeliever. You're not crying in belief, you're crying in unbelief. He's saying that Job is not trusted in a faithful God and is instead demanding God work by his system and not God's. Although thou sayest thou shalt not see him, Yet judgment is before him, therefore, and this is his call, trust thou in him. Trust him, is what he's saying. 
But now because it is not so, he's saying you don't see the wicked punished. He hath, he hath visited in his anger, yet he knoweth it not in great extremity. And it's a confusing way of saying God has not judged the wicked and you're not happy with that. You want to see everything made right now. Therefore doth God open his mouth in vain, or sorry, therefore doth Job open his mouth in vain. He multiplieth words without knowledge. Elihu calls Job to trust in God because God is faithful, even though he doesn't see God judging the wicked now on earth. And that's that same problem with the now. We wrestle with the now. I want to be vindicated now. If I'm falsely accused, I want to be said to be innocent now. I'm not willing to wait for it. And he says, you want to see the wicked punished now. You don't want to wait for God's timing. And he calls Job to stop talking in vain, empty words against God. In other words, where Job before in chapter one is bringing sacrifices to God and he has integrity in his heart, Elihu is saying that in your suffering, you have started to talk deceitfully to God. You've said vain or unbelieving words. And he says, stop piling up words without knowledge. And if you wonder if Elihu, and this is some of the little hints of, of whether what Elihu says lines up with what God wants to say. Uh, Job 38.2, this is God speaking. Who is this that darkeneth counsel by words without knowledge? That's the question he asks of Job right as he starts. So you can see how God is going to, this preparatory prophet Elihu is speaking to Job. And this is what God is going to finish the argument. Not that he needed Elihu to set him up. He chose to use Elihu to start breaking down Job's heart. What's the action step? Elihu is confronting in this third speech our tendency to expect and demand that God work by our system. He is confronting the dangerous thought that we can leverage God, that he owes us, and when we cry to him, he must answer us by our standards. He's already dealt with the idea that God speaks. Okay, so I'm not saying that God is going to be silent. He says God is speaking. He's not, he's not distant but see, we demand that God answer based on our standard or our system. We cry out, but we neglect to cry for him. If you're in the midst of suffering or a struggle or a wrestling, I want you to, to, to pause a minute and think about what your cry sounds like. And don't beat yourself up. Don't, don't overanalyze this. But ask yourself, am I crying for my deliverer or am I saying I have to have deliverance? And we've talked about this at Open Church as we work through anxiety and fear and depression and some of the things that we wrestle with. But are we seeking deliverance or seeking the deliverer? And that's what Ellie Hughes pointing to. He says, seek the deliverer. Cry to the deliverer. Don't tell the deliverer the deliverance he has to deliver to you. Seek God, not seek what God will do for you. See, we cry out, but we neglect to cry for him. We neglect to seek him, to desire him. And Elihu confronts that in Job and in us. You see, we want God to work by our system instead of faithfully trusting in his system. And I put a couple questions. Have we possibly thought we can leverage God, that God owes us instead of trusting in a faithful, loving, and I did this, all-knowing God? See, I think we think we're all-knowing and we forget that he is. And then have we possibly run to the wisdom of this world? And I'm not necessarily saying worldly wisdom. I'm not saying, this, I'm not saying you've turned to wickedness, but have we possibly turned to the beast and the birds instead of turning to the one who is the author of all wisdom? 
have we possibly sought the wrong solution? See, Elihu holds nothing back as he continues confronting Job and, and I think that the audience that's potentially gathered around him. He's passionate about God's glory. He's passionate to see Job addressing where he's actually slipped and rebelled. He wants Job to recognize in his heart that God is fair. If God was not the just one, there would be no such thing as justice. Our whole concept of justice rests on the fact that God is just. To undermine that is to destroy justice and right completely, leaving it arbitrary and based on humanity's sinful propensities. Just to tie it to our culture a little bit. We live in an age of relativism. There is no absolutes or there is no absolute because no one believes there's no absolutes. They just believe the absolute rests in them. And we've seen what that looks like. Let me give a little illustration. We have people ramped up with about the right to murder babies, but they'll cry tears for a kitten. And we have people ramped up and will say the most wicked things, horrible things. Like you would think even the most horrible person in the world wouldn't say that and then flip it around and say that, uh, that you're being violent if you don't use uh, their preferred pronoun. And I'm speaking to the current situation. That is the fruit of not seeing God for who he is and for what he does. Why do people come up with what I would think most of us think are ridiculous statements? It's because they don't have the God of justice in their mind. And you remove that, you attack God's character in that way. Either you don't believe God is just or you don't believe in God. And suddenly everything falls apart. That's what we're staring at. And Elihu is telling Job, if you're going to say that God isn't just, then there is no justice. There is no mercy. There is no grace. There is no redemption. By what you're saying, you're negating your call for a redeemer because God is fair. And then secondly, he wants God to see that God is, or Job to see that God is faithful and that we don't leverage God, nor does God owe us. God is not constrained to our system of blessing and punishment. And I put thankfully so, because by our own system, we really are doomed. That's what's, I think one of the fact that they're lost and heading to hell is the saddest component of watching our world. But if they actually follow through in their system, they're doomed. They spurn the God of mercy and love to chase after something that dooms them. That literally, if they follow through on their system, it's self-devouring. I'm going back to philosophies and logic. And if they actually followed the logic, they would realize they destroy themselves. Instead, he's saying, trust in a faithful God, the one who always acts according to his perfect and righteous and loving nature. Let's pray. Father, thank for the opportunity we had to, to study uh, Elihu and his conversation with Job, when we recognize, if, if we get over our own societal norms of conversation, we recognize that he's being used by you to confront in Job, to set up the conversation that you're going to have. But he, he teaches us some powerful lessons to trust in your fairness and your rightness and your justice, to recognize that's who you are. You are the just one. Be grateful to you because without a just supreme ruler, we would have no justice. And we see the fruit of that in the world around us. And I, we could trace through all of history and find how humanity has responded in this way, undermining or denying you. And, and it results in chaos and awful confusion and death and wickedness. 
But you are fair. You are the just one. And then secondly, to recognize that you're faithful. You are worthy of worship. You are also trustworthy. We don't have to constantly wonder if you'll do what is right or if your plan will be followed through. But instead, we recognize that you control the breath that every one of us breathe, that you're involved in that. You hold the world in your hands. And Lord, we are grateful for the victories we see and the movement we see, but we recognize that that is not our redemption. Our own government is not our Savior. Instead, we know that the hope for this world rests in your Son, Jesus Christ, and your plan of salvation. And help us to recognize that you are faithful. As we battle certain things, and and I know people here are wrestling with certain struggles, with burdens and suffering, real suffering they're walking through, I pray that uh, they will look to you. They'll seek you in this, seek to deliver, that you'll give them peace, that you'll answer their questions. Lord, because we know that you are faithful, and we know that you are fair. In your precious and holy name, amen.